You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Good morning, Grace Point. How we doing? Good. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free as you leave here today to swing by Centerpoint. We not only want to give you a journal and maybe a tumbler, but if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. So we got free Bibles back there, both in English and in Spanish. But in the meantime, you can follow along by checking out the side screens here. Most of the scriptures, quotes, pictures, stuff like that, that I'm going to be talking about today will be up there. And so like you heard, it is Mother's Day, right? So this is the third time you've heard it. So I would encourage you not just to text mom, but call mom, okay? I would say call mom. I know I'm going to call my mom here in just a little bit. If I send her a text, she'll fire back. That's all you got? And I'll be like, no, I can actually call you. And so Mother's Day can be a time of joy, but I also recognize too that it can be a time for sorrow for some of us. Perhaps over this last year, you lost a mother, Or maybe uh, you're having a difficult time conceiving. And a day like today just makes that sting a bit more. Here's what I want you to know. At Grace Point Church Northwest, we're here for you. We want to pray with you. We've got prayer point in the back. If you need prayer today at any point in the gathering, feel free to go back there and pray with some of our pastors and leaders. Uh, But let's do this. Why don't we pray right now? Sound good? Let's pray. Let's pray for uh, our time here as well today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love and your grace. And I thank you that you say in the Psalms that you are close to the brokenhearted. That you are a God who hears us when we cry out. And so, Father, I pray for all those who are experiencing a loss right now. And a day like today just makes that sting all the more of a reality. I pray that you just comfort them. You tell us in Philippians that you give a peace that surpasses understanding. That when we don't understand why certain things befall us in this life, you do promise to be present, close, and to bring peace. And so God, we pray that for one another and for those that are amongst us. Be with us now as we go through the word. I pray that it rests as you see fit on the hearts of all of us here, including myself. And I just pray, Father, that in all things, we give you glory, honor, and praise because you rightly, rightly deserve it. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, for all the moms in the room, and for everybody in the room, I have a gift, and it's called the gospel, okay? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, so we're going to check that out. We're in the book of John, and as you see, we've entitled this series, The Book of John, That You May Believe, because that is John's sole purpose. He wants you and me to believe in Jesus. And this morning, I think he wants to make sure that your life and my life is pointed in the right direction. Who in here has ever heard of Jim Marshall? Two of you. That's okay, because I'm going to tell you all about him, okay? You see, Jim Marshall was a defensive end for the Minnesota Vikings. And in 1965, he was playing against the San Francisco 49ers, and it was in that game that Marshall made a play that defined his entire career. There was a fumble. With that, Marshall picked up the fumble, and as fast as he possibly could, with all the energy and all of his might, he ran towards an end zone. And when he got into that end zone, he flipped up the ball thinking he had scored a touchdown, only to find out he ran into the 49ers end zone. It wasn't until a 49ers player walked up and whispered into his ear, thanks, Jim, 
that he found out he had made a huge mistake. And instead of putting points on the board for him, he did what is called in football a safety and actually put two points on the board for the 49ers. It is considered one of the five worst plays in NFL history. And after a 20-something year career, he is known as Wrong Way Marshall. Like Jim, I can't help but to think many of our lives are pointed in a direction. We're running towards something, but the question you've got to ask is what you're running towards, is what you're pointing to, is it right? You see, what John wants to do for you and me this morning is to make sure our lives are pointing in the right direction. But I not only think he wants to make sure that our lives are pointed in the right direction, but he also wants to encourage us to point other people's lives in the right direction. So check out John chapter 3, verse 22. Here's what we read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Aon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So sometime after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we talked about last week, for the past two weeks actually, he heads out into the Judean countryside and begins baptizing people. Now Jesus wasn't the only one out in the Judean countryside, was he? Who else was there? John. Now who is John? That's a great question. What is important for you and me to understand is that the John we're talking about here is not the disciple John. It's not the John who wrote this gospel that we're reading. Rather, the John we're talking about is John the Baptist, also known as Jesus' cousin. You see, and who was John the, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus? Well, we learn in Luke chapter 1 that his daddy was named Zechariah. And what did Zechariah do for a profession? He was a priest. He worked at the temple. But not only did his dad work at the temple, we find out that his mom, Elizabeth, was the daughter of a temple priest. And what Luke tells us is that both of them lived their entire lives devoted to God, loving God, and serving God. So kind of long story short, you could basically say John was just a ministry kid in a ministry family. And John was a few months older than Jesus. And he began his ministry a few months before Jesus did. And when he did, his ministry took off. It flat exploded. Like he was all over Instagram. He was all over Facebook. He was trending on YouTube. He had the top five most downloaded podcast, if you will. Like he was just the man. And just when things are starting to take off and get good, here comes his cousin, Jesus, with his disciples, kind of stealing some of his thunder. And this doesn't go over too well with John's disciples. See, in verse 25, we read this. Now, discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going, to, are going to him. Now we don't necessarily know what John's disciples and this Jewish man were talking about. They could have been debating, you know, purification laws or ceremonial laws. Maybe this man had a question of whose baptism was legit. Was it Jesus's baptism or John's? Whatever it was, we know that it triggered something within them that we see, and that is that they are frustrated with Jesus. They come to John and they basically say, teacher, you remember that guy in chapter 1, verse 25, 29, you said this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You remember that guy? Well, John, behold, Rabbi, behold, he's taken away all the people and they are ticked. I mean, think about it. No one really knew who Jesus was until John pointed him out. John's disciples recognized that John 
bore witness to Jesus. And now this Jesus, the one whom John bore witness, was in their eyes taking practically everyone. Who in here has ever been to a Las Vegas Knights game? Some of us. You know my favorite part of the Las Vegas Knights game? It's when they win. But it's also this. There is always some point in the game where they'll pull somebody up to the top who is a, like a fan of the other team. And what do they do there? They do a jersey exchange, right? So they'll take off their Capitals jersey, give it to them, and then they put on a Knights jersey or a Sharks or whoever it is. And I think it's absolutely hilarious. This is kind of what's going on in this scene. These people are literally taking off their jersey that says Team John. They're throwing it on the ground. They're turning it over, never to go back to it. And they're putting on a jersey that's what? Team Jesus. Now, John's disciples are obviously jealous for John and his reputation. There's no doubt about that. However, I can't help but to think they felt threatened themselves. I mean, what are they to do now that John's popularity is waning and Jesus's is growing? I mean, think about it. Just like John, it is possible that some of his followers have given, much, given up much to follow him. Perhaps they too experienced a hostile group of religious leaders questioning why they followed John the Baptist. Perhaps they ran out into the wilderness because they were rejected and alienated by their own people for following John. And just as fast as John's reputation and popularity exploded, it imploded. It was almost overnight. And what that does is I think that leads you and me to ask a very important question and is this, are you sure you're following the right guy? Are you sure you're pointed towards the right guy? Many of you were with us during our series in 1 Corinthians. We entitled that series The Imperfect Church because if you remember, it was an extremely imperfect church. And we found out that in the church in Corinth, there was a huge fight going on that people were magnifying certain preachers while neglecting their message. In 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13, we read this. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's the answer to all those rhetorical questions? No, you can say it, it's okay, you get an A. Okay, no, no, they weren't. I mean, you see, if you follow, let's say, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, okay? We got their emblem up here. Who do you despise? the San Jose Sharks or the LA Kings, right? If you drink Coke, oh, there's one. Church discipline later. No, I'm just playing. Listen, 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 listen. I'm just totally playing. We're going to cut that out of this, okay? (laughs) But listen to me. If you drink Coke, you probably don't like what? Pepsi, right? If you use Apple products, you probably despise what? You may say there are no rivals, but it's PC, PC. And if you're for the Democratic Party, you possibly despise who? The Republican Party or vice versa. These make sense. Why? They're completely different teams. Yet is Paul and Apollos and Cephas on a different team? Is Pastor John, Pastor Nathan, Pastor Stephen and I all on a different team? Is John on a different team? The answer to that is no. We're all on one team with one name on our jersey. And whose name is that? Jesus. That's what's going on here. And that is why John tells his disciples where his true allegiances reside. Listen to verse 27. 
John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I say I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You can almost picture John just standing before his angry and worried disciples. And he knows that what he is about to say next, they're not going to really receive. John looks at them and essentially says, fellas, listen up. Nobody, and I mean nobody, receives anything unless it's given to him by God. That means if Jesus is trending better than I am, I'm okay with that. Why? Because God has chosen to grow his ministry. And if you remember, that's the sole reason John was here to begin with. In John chapter 1, we read that John is nothing more than a what? A voice. A voice. You see, in John 1.23, you might remember that John the Baptist said this about himself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You might recall that when we looked at this, what John is referring back to is an Old Testament text in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. There we read this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, during the Old Testament times, especially during this time, the people of Judah were taken captive by Babylon because of their sin. And while they were under Babylonian captivity, God shows up and says to them, I am not going to leave you there forever. I'm going to bring salvation. I am going to bring rescue. I'm going to pull you out of there. But before I do that, guess what? There's going to be a voice that comes. And what that voice is going to do is going to proclaim that a road needs to be built in this barren desert so that when my salvation comes, all you exiles will have a road that leads you back to my salvation. Therefore, the people were always to be ready to look for when God's salvation comes. That's his point. And you might recall that I told you that I saw a commercial that reminded me kind of of this. You see, Domino's had put out a commercial that basically says this. If you have a pothole or something wrong with your road, let them know. And what will they do? They will send a truck out to fix that pothole. Where I think they need to go is at Craig and Jones. They need to fix that. I've been driving my kids to school. I go over that. My coffee spills everywhere. Let's fix that. But why are they so particular about potholes? Because they want to make sure the pizza they deliver to you is perfect. So they are paving the way for pizza. That's the campaign. John says that he is the voice that the prophet Isaiah spoke of. And what Isaiah wrote in chapter 40 was 700 years before John ever stepped foot on this earth. And astonishingly, astonishingly, what does John say? He's that voice. He is that voice that has come to remove the potholes in the streets so that you and I could be ready for something far greater than pizza. You see, it's important for, for us to know that John didn't care if people knew who he was. He was only passionate that everybody was pointed to and knows who? Jesus. You can almost say that his chief passion was for everyone to quit his team and to join Jesus' team. And what John told us in this text is that everything in your life and in my life has been given to us by a generous, loving, gracious God for our joy. Don't miss that. For our joy, yes. 
but also with the purpose of pointing other people to Jesus. You see, D.A. Carson helpfully writes this. He says, As such, it is extremely broad. God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims, for every human being does not have anything but what he has received. And what did John receive in his life? That his job, his goal, his purpose was to pave the way for Jesus' first coming. And what could it be in your life? Perhaps it's your job. God has given you a job. He's given you that job for his glory, also for your joy. But could it be possible that he's given you that job so that you could point other people you work with to Jesus too? Perhaps what God has given you is a house. And to live in that house is for God's glory and for your joy to put a roof over your head. But is it possible that the house that you have has been given to you by God for the purpose of inviting other people in to point them to Jesus? Some of us in here, we have kids. That's a blessing, right? God has given us kids for his glory, our joy. Well, except on certain days. But you know what I mean. It's to grow you and to shape you. But is the purpose of your kids only for you? I would argue that the biblical picture for your kids is to raise them up to know God and then point them to teach other people about who Jesus is. And I'll never forget, I was serving as a youth pastor at another church here in the valley. And after our Sunday gathering, one of the parents came up to me and they said, Travis, you need to quit talking about international missions so much. Going overseas, telling people about Jesus. When I asked this dad why, he looked at me right in the eye, pretty stern, and he said, I didn't spend all that money on my child's education so that she can waste it in some other country. You see, all gifts God has given us are from a generous God. And I would argue that ultimate joy is enjoying them, right? But I would say ultimate joy is using them for the proclamation and pointing of Jesus, to point other people to Jesus. And to make this point, John further explains it with the truth and an analogy that you and I are all too familiar with. Listen, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, who in here has ever been to a wedding? Most of us. How many of you have been in a wedding? So I have been a best man and I have had a best man. And what is the role of the best man in a wedding? In our culture, it's just basically hold the rings, I think, right? Mine hit them, played a joke. I don't know about yours, but that's what happened. In Jesus' day, the best man had a whole lot more responsibility. Listen to what William Barclay says. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, the shoshpin, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark, he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and let him in. And he went away rejoicing for his task was complete. I have two daughters, okay? And I'm going to be uh, fairly honest. 
that when some man comes up and says to me, I want to marry your daughters, I'm going to say, I'm a biblical man. And you better have a really good best man. Am I right? Because I want him to carry some of this responsibility. Because here's why. Not only do I want to do this, but what is this friend of the bridegroom? What is his chief passion? What's his attention on? It's on the groom. That's it. He is all about one person. And I don't know about you, but if on my wedding day, I'm standing there and my bride's coming down the aisle and my best man is winking at her, blowing her kisses, giving her the eye, like putting a phone up like, hey, you call me. What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to knock him out. Why? Because he's not there for that. What's his job? To make sure this thing goes down right. He's only about the groom and the groom alone. That's who he's there for. No best man in his right mind is going to ever do such a thing. And John was a best man who is in the right state of mind. He looks at his disciples and essentially says, guys, I'm a friend of the bridegroom, Jesus. And my joy is complete for my entire job was to clear the way for the bridegroom, Jesus, to be with his bride. Mission complete. Now, I know some of you at this point, you begin to wonder, well, who's Jesus' bride? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus' bride is the church. And if you think carefully about what's going on here, John's joy is double. Not only is he a friend of the bridegroom who's paving the way for Jesus, but John will discover that he is also part of the bride of Jesus because he too was in need of the saving grace of his cousin, Jesus. You see, the church is the bride of Jesus, and I know that may be difficult for some of us to grasp, especially some of us men in this room, okay? We're like, what does that mean? But in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Paul talks about the roles of men and women in marriage. And what he says in this text is that marriage isn't primarily about procreation, purity, pleasure, or partnership. Rather, he says that the purpose of marriage is about proclamation. It's about putting forth an image of something, and listen to what he says in 531. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, intermingled, tied, inseparable. And then look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What are our marriages supposed to proclaim? The relationship of Jesus and his relationship to his church. You see, the mission or marriage is to picture what Jesus has done to make a bride for himself out of sinners like you and me. And another name for that bride is the church. And John Piper is so helpful in this because he describes what, it, it, what this relationship looks like. Listen, he says, King Jesus came into the world to take a wife, not a harem and not for sex, but to give her pleasures that make sex taste like cardboard. He paid for her with his life. And he is now at work by his spirit and by his word, purifying and beautifying her for himself and for what? Her joy. Jesus is for your joy. You see, men, you got to listen to this. And if you're a single guy in here, you got to listen to this too. Paul is telling us, that as men, we are to love our wives with a love that is willing to die. Practically, that means men are to love their wives with a love that sacrifices everything for her benefit and well-being. With a love 
that doesn't have to be earned. We are to love her with a love that leads her spiritually and grows her closer to Jesus. We are to love her with a love that cherishes her and nourishes her. And we are to love her like our own bodies, which means this, we are not to abuse her, neglect her, ignore her, anything like that. Why? Because what it is we're trying to proclaim. You see, men are to do all this And you got to listen, they are to do this because that's the way Jesus loves his bride, the church. Now, there's not a single dude, me included, who's sitting or standing in this room who could say, I've done that perfectly, right? But here's the good news. Your wife doesn't need your perfection. Jesus, he has that covered. What she needs is your progress. And the good news for all of us in this room is where we have done that imperfectly, guess what? Jesus loves his bride perfectly every single time. And if you trust in Jesus, you become a part of his bride, the church, and Jesus loves you like that. That should make some of us in here do cartwheels if we are able. That is an unbelievable amount of love. And he loves you perfectly like that. You can see now why John was determined will was to become less so that Jesus could become more. So that others like you and me and every single person we see in Northwest Las Vegas can experience the love of the bridegroom. That's what we are not only to point our lives to, but point other people to. And because of that, John continues to share how great and glorious this bridegroom Jesus is. Listen, he says in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Says it twice, it must be important. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, who does John say is from above? When in doubt, just say Jesus and you pretty much get an A, okay? He's talking about Jesus. Who's from the earth? John. Jesus, who is from heaven, is above everything. Why? Because John could call people to repentance and baptism, but he couldn't change their lives. He could, bring, he could not bring the new birth we heard about a few weeks ago. He can't save you from your sins. John was just one who paved the way for someone who could. And what is his name? Jesus. That's the one who has come. You see, Jesus can do what John never could. Why? Because he's from heaven. Here in October, we're going to take our first trip overseas as a church. We're going to go to Ireland. And if you're a covenant partner here at Grace Point, you can sign up and you can go. Okay, we're going to take about 10 people. But let's say we're all going to make a trip over to Ireland. How could we find out about Ireland? We could read about it, of course. We could call a travel agent here in the States and learn a lot about Ireland. But you know what would be better than doing any of that? Let's call my friend Andrew Elder. Why? Because he's Irish. He lives in Ireland. Andrew is from there. He can tell you and me things about Ireland that normal people can't. Why? Because he is from there. And what is important for us to see is that God didn't download a message. He didn't just write a big message across the sky. 
In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit would come upon people, it would come upon them for a limited amount of time, for a specific time and purpose. Yet John tells us that when he saw Jesus, the Spirit didn't just come down for a limited amount of time and then leave, but it came down and it remained on him. The Spirit was with him without measure. And what that means is, is that you and I can trust whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth. What he says about heaven and hell, what he says about life and death, what he says about the gospel, what he says about God. Why can we trust it? Because John told us that Jesus came down, not speaking his own message, but he's uttering the words of who? The Father, God. And with that, John says there's really only two responses to Jesus' message. Those who believe and those who don't. You see, those who trust Jesus, John says, put their seal to this, that God is true. One of the things we do here at Grace Point is that if you become a covenant partner, that is a member, we send you a letter. And in that letter, we put on there a wax seal of the Grace Point emblem. And when you receive that and it's not broken, here's what you know. You can be confident that what is on that letter is from who? Grace Point Church. Paul says that those who believe and or John says that those who believe and trust in Jesus, set their seal to what they heard about Jesus and that it's authentic, that what he is saying is in fact the very words of God. However, and sadly, there's not everybody believes and trusts in Jesus, do they? Whereas those who believe in Jesus say God is true, those who do not trust in Jesus are not indifferent. But John says they're saying to God, you're a liar. That is why John helps us to see what it means to trust in Jesus. Look at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. What is belief? Belief is not just knowing a bunch of facts about Jesus. Belief is entrusting yourself to Jesus. That means that you and I don't just believe what Jesus said, but you and I also believe, obey and, and act on what Jesus has said in his word. This past week, when I was preparing this part of the message, uh, it, it, it was at my house and, and it was dinner time. And so my wife said, hey, will you go get uh, our son for dinner? And so I go outside and I yell, Caleb, come inside now. It's time for dinner. He yells back, okay, I hear you, basically. Am I happy? No. Why? Because what did he not do? He did not come in for dinner. So let's say I go back outside, and I walk over, and I see my son and his friend sitting down. And I say, bud, do you not hear me? I said, it's time to come in for dinner. It's time to eat dinner. How would I respond if he looked back at me and said, dad, I remember what you said. My buddy and I, we've been studying what you just said. I can even quote, come inside for dinner in Hebrew. Would I be happy? No. Impressed? Absolutely. Happy? Absolutely not. Why? Because he hasn't done what I said. How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? It grows apples. How do I know that the orange trees in my dad's backyard in Arizona are oranges? Because I've taken them off, we've cut them open, I've tasted their oranges. There's fruit there. There's fruit and what we see is in the book of Acts, when the gospel is exploding through the church, we don't read that people just heard, but we read that they did something with what they heard. Listen to what it says. 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became what? Obedient to the faith. You see, belief in Jesus and obedience in Jesus are like two strands on a rope. You can't go to Jesus and say, hey, I'll take your salvation, but I'm not going to follow you. And what you've got to understand is absolutely you and I come to Jesus as we are. But Jesus loves you and me enough not to let us stay where we are. J.D. Greer says it like this. He says, biblical repentance, however, is not merely a request for exoneration. It's a change of the heart about sin. Now, some of you might be questioning my love for my son, but let me just clean it up like this, okay? (laughs) When my son was born, we had a red healer and we called her Mika. Now, we loved her. We fed her. We played with her. We took her on trips with us. We cleaned up after her. We bathed her. We did all of that. However, when my son was born, my affections changed, right? And if I had to compare my love for for Mika with my son, and I was made a decision, hey, you got to choose your son or you got to choose your dog, it's a no-brainer. What am I choosing? The son. Some of you are thinking you're going to say the dog. No, I'm not. I'm choosing the son. I'm choosing the son. 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, 1,000 out of 1,000, whatever the number you need to put in there, I'm choosing my son every single time. Every single time. You see, compared to my love for my son, my love for my dog would look like hate. And here's what you got to see. We obey Jesus and not our sin because we love Jesus. We don't obey Jesus because we have to. But when the Spirit comes within us, changes our affections, He changes our desires. And we start to do the things Jesus would like for us to do, not because we have to, but because we want to. We love him. None of us in here, and you've heard me use this analogy, none of us in here are happy with begrudging, reluctant obedience. If I'm laying on the couch and I'm taking a nap, and my daughter comes up, and she's done this before, pulls a blanket over me when I'm sleeping, and she walks away quietly, not trying to wake her daughter, why is she doing that? Because she loves her dad. I'm happy with that, right? But let's say I'm laying down there and and instead of taking that blanket and pulling it over me graciously, lovingly, quietly to keep me asleep, she wads it up and throws it as a fastball right at my face. And did she do a loving act for me? She did an act, (laughs) but I didn't feel no love. You see, God wants to change your heart and your desires. You don't obey because you have to. You obey because he's graciously poured his love into you and you want to. And we will start to pursue God's will with abandon. Sadly, however, those who do not believe in Jesus, Jesus says remained under what? God's wrath. And that's right now. And you got to see that God's wrath is an expression of his goodness. Without wrath, there would be no goodness. And God's wrath is not like you and me when we fly off the handle when we don't get something we want. I mean, think about it. Because I love my kids, I will not tolerate things in their life that will harm them. Things like lying, cruelty, and laziness. You see, God's wrath grows out of love for us to see his goodness, purity, and holiness in our lives for his glory. But hear me clearly, but also for your joy. For your joy. You think about God's wrath in the Bible. It's both active and passive. 
And oftentimes those go together. And we see more often than not in the Bible that God's wrath is passive. What do I mean by that? Think of Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. Many of us know that story. There were prodigal sons. There was an older brother and a little brother. Little brother goes to his dad and what does he say to dad? Dad, give me my stuff. Give it to me now. I Basically, you're dead to me even though you're alive and I should get my inheritance after you're dead. You're basically dead to me in this life. So give me my inheritance now. I'm going. And what does the father do? Passive, just lets him go. Think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. God comes to him 10 times. 10 times God comes to him and says, let my people go. And in the text, we see God hardens his heart. We also see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's passive. Fine. You don't want to turn him over? I'll just let you go to what you want. We'll see what happens. And in Romans chapter 1, we see that the scripture is clear. That all of us are sinners, alienated from God. Why? Because we refuse to give thanks to God. We refuse to worship God. Instead, we're no different than that little bitty boy, that prodigal son. And here's what the Bible says. It says that God turns them over to their wants and their desires. Why does he do that? It's because what C.S. Lewis says, listen to this. In his book, The Great Divorce, he says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Heard a guy once say, let's say you get to heaven. And everything in heaven that you want is there. Your family, your dog, Mika's back. Uh, like, Like, you know, steak, even though you can't kill anything. But there's going to be a supplement. And it's going to be awesome. I don't think so. If it's tofu, it's not as good. But I'm blowing up heaven. I'm sorry. Heaven's going to be awesome, okay? Let's say you get there and you get everything you want. Everything you want. But God the Father's not there. Jesus is not there. Would you really want to go to heaven? You see, heaven isn't a place for those who don't want hell. Heaven is a place for those who want Jesus. Because that's who's there. So the question you got to ask yourself is this. Are you pointing others to? What are you pointing others to? What is your life being pointed to? You and I don't want to be known as a wrong way fox. That's my last name. You don't want to be known as a wrong way marshal. I'm talking about Jim Marshall, not one of our elders, Nathan Marshall, okay? You don't want to be known as that. You need to trust in the bridegroom today and you need to point others to him. You see, the question is not whether you deserve wrath. The question that all of us should be wrestling with is this. Have you received the rescue that has been provided by God the Father through his son Jesus? Are you a part of his bride, the church, through faith and trust in him? 